Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Louis O'Connor. Louis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And I've had, I don't know if it's good luck or the Lord's work, but I've had a number of guests come from the Emerald Isle recently. So it's nice to have another one from Ireland. Today we're going to talk about strategic metals. So Louis O'Connor is the founder and principal of Strategic Metals Invest. They are the only industry supplier in the world to offer private investors the option to purchase and profit from owning strategic metals. And let's start there. So what I would refer to as rare earth metals, you use the the moniker strategic metals. Let's get a definition out there to give people a sense of, of the context here. Could you maybe give us a definition of what encapsulates in your terminology strategic metals? Yeah, yeah, I see. It's a good a good start, Brian. So yeah, I named the company Strategic Metals simply because, I mean, that's not obviously a scientific term, but Strategic Metals is an umbrella term for those metals that are sort of intrinsic to our daily life. And they, so that would encompass what, strictly speaking, the scientific term is rare earth elements, because some of them are in a powdered and oxide form. But in the US, I think, they might be known also as technology metals. Also now some of them are being called green metals. But essentially, you know, they sort of power our daily lives. So they're in all modern technology, uh, you know, wind power, solar power. They're needed now for the, the permanent magnets and electric cars. So just about, we touch and see them and feel them every day and, and might not be aware of it, you know. Well, well that's where they first came on my 
radar was probably five plus years ago, you started hearing about how you know the U.S. really had limited access to these metals that were acquired for, I think initially, tech mobile devices, right? So an iPhone and some of those things. And, you know, recently it's been in the news quite a bit, and you referenced this, about the need for the, the battery components for EVs. And it's gone, and I want to hear your opinion on this, it's gone beyond just, you know, an investment. It's really become a, a geopolitical strategic initiative by the U.S. because the majority of these rare earths or strategic metals are located in China and Mongolia, correct? Yes, exactly. There's a great story here sort of hidden in plain sight, Brian. So despite the name rare earth metals or rare earth elements are not always that rare, they can be found, you know, in abundance. China has about 50% of the world's reserves, but you know, there's one there's one producing mine in the US which is Mountain Pass in California, but also there's a facility in Australia. So they can be sort of found everywhere, but not found in abundance. And the real story sort of for investors anyway, is the fact that China is about 30 years ahead of the rest of the world. If you go back to the 1980s, the US actually was producing about 60% of the world's rare earths. Now at that time, the whole, you know, sort of technology thing was, hadn't really kicked off. And, you know, is it possible China maybe saw how much more they would be needed? The Chinese premier at the time in 1987 made a very bold and a sort of a shrewd statement. He actually said he was on a, a rare earth facility and he said the Middle East has oil, China has rare earths, Deng Xiaoping. And that's proven to be a very shrewd prediction because fast forward 30 years later and China now produces more than 80%. But crucially, and here's the real kicker, Brian, of this whole thing, right? They are responsible for 87% of the world's refining. Now, I'll just cover that very quickly for you, because just about nobody outside of, you know, people in the industry would be aware of it, is, as I said, they could sort of be found, at, you know, in the U.S. For example, that facility at Mountain Pass in California, they produce rare earths there, but they send all of them, 100% of them to China for the refining process. Now, why is that so important is, Rare earths are never found. They don't occur naturally. They're always found as a sort of a byproduct of another raw material. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. One of them, gallium, is a byproduct of aluminum. So you'll never, you know, it has to be extracted and separated. And that process of extraction and separation is complicated, expensive. And China's just, you know, technology-wise, they're way ahead of the rest of the world. So although Europe and the U.S. is waking up to this, it's not something they're going to solve overnight because they don't have the metallurgists and the geologists with the, with the sort of skills to do it. And I think to take it a step further, China's you know kind of concept of using their capital to leverage geopolitical strategy has involved specifically Africa, which also has a huge access point for a lot of these rare earths. Their Belt and Road Initiative was well thought out in terms of having relationships with some of these countries that, you know, are resource rich and, and cash poor. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, I think it's Congo in particular that has a, a number of these sources available in the ground? Yeah. Well, look, again, talk about hidden in plain sight. China's future policy 2025, which is over 20 years sort of available, 
uh, clearly states that their goal is domestic self-sufficiency in 10 different technologies. And if not all the raw materials are available domestically for what they want to do, then they get them from elsewhere as well, like Africa. Now, they're very close to reaching that goal in rare earths. I mean, they're, eight, they're responsible for more than 80% of the production. So sometime between now and 2000, 2000, let's say 2025 and 2030, China will reach that self-sufficiency in rare earths. And then they'll want to go further down the value chain, you know, to the products themselves. Like they have big plans for solar, they have big plans for wind turbines, and also electric mobility, electric cars. So we're very close to a point where the US and Europe, I'm only mentioning the US because you're in North America, but I'm in Europe. Europe has no, you know, supply chain either. But we're very close to where, you know, in a year or two or, or three, the US and Europe will literally wait in line for what China will will export after they've satisfied their own quotas. I mean, you know, funny enough, there's a gentleman in the US, his name's Jack Lifton, and he writes for Investor Intel, which is sort of an online, you know, publication on, on critical minerals. And I would consider Jack the foremost authority in rare earths in the world, you know. He's been at it since the 60s. But, you know, Jack sort of, you know, he pretty much said the war's already over in this case. And the case rare earths China has already won, you know. And the, the parallel I would draw is what we're seeing play out in real time in the semiconductor space, where we, the U.S. in particular, felt comfortable with a lot of the production and facilities being located in Taiwan and mainland China. Now, all of a sudden, there's geopolitical tensions flaring up, and we realize we need to, to reshore these assets and production facilities. But similarly, I would imagine these are extremely capital expenditure heavy type industries and production facilities where you're talking about years and billions of dollars to create those facilities domestically. And so, yeah, this realization is coming quickly, but there's not a lot we can do about it. And so China, to your point, seems like they're really well positioned to be able to leverage this against the rest of the world. Yeah. Actually, you know, I'm surprised you know as much about Clonclon and the semiconductors as you do, because most people are just not aware of it. And I was only sort of came to be aware of it recently, which is Taiwan actually produces 92% of, of the world's semiconductors. The other 8% are in South Korea. So what's interesting there is both the US and China and Europe are dependent on Taiwan. But here's the interesting, from my point of view, from our business, right, which is what's critical to semiconductors and these sort of super, super powerful computer chips is gallium and germanium. And China sort of has the monopoly on them. So, so just to give you an example, in 2010, the Japanese, I mean, it's a little bit of a side story, but the Japanese detained a Chinese, a fishing trawler captain for fishing, you know, in, in disputed waters. Now, in retaliation for that, China restricted the quotas of rare earths. Some of them went up five times in value in a period of a few months. So if China decided, again, they've only done that in, once in 2010, they haven't done it since, but they're threatening to do it again. If they withheld the quotas on germanium and gallium or any of the other metals that they pretty much set the price and the quotas for, then for us, I mean, for my business, it's very good news for investors because likely we'll see the prices spike again. 
Yeah, it feels like energy and Russia, where, you know, you put these deals together during this period of globalization and, you know, good harmony. And when things go sideways, you realize that they have this huge amount of leverage over the end user. And on the semiconductor side, I want to get back to rare earths, but your point is well taken. You think about this in terms of China producing and owning the rare earth minerals and then the semiconductors that go into, you know, fighter planes, everyday consumer products that are, you know, in the hands of, of U.S. citizens and folks in Europe, it gets pretty scary pretty quickly on that front. And so let's bring it back to kind of the strategic metal standpoint. How did you get involved in this business initially? Okay, so first of all, I came across it as an investor myself in 2017. Like just about everybody else, I was not aware at the time that, you know, retail or private investors could purchase and physically own these metals. Just exactly the same paradigm as gold and silver. You know, you buy them, you physically own them, and, you know, you store them for, you know, whatever your goal is or whatever, you, you know, your target is and for returns and then liquidate them. So until then, I haven't been aware, but I know why is because it's only since 2010, it's a relatively new asset class. And there's only one industry supplier, which is now my partner. I'm I'm a sales partner, commercial partner for a company in Germany called Tradium. They're the only industry supplier in the world that offers this to private investors. And you'll notice, obviously, I stress industry supplier That's the critical component in terms of safety, security here, Brian, because there's no point in me or you, you know, buying $100,000 worth of gallium and storing it in a safe here. I mean, we could do that, but the only end buyer for these products are industry buyers, you know, you know, corporations and smaller companies that make medical devices and stuff. So and unless you're buying from a bona fide industry buyer and preferably with 20, 30 years in the industry, there's no point in doing this. You know, if I was just a sort of a sales and marketing company, it wouldn't work, you know. And I want to be careful with the analogy to gold because I know there are massive differences, especially in utilization. But similarly, can investors get exposure to these investments through a proxy publicly traded ETF or mutual fund, or is there a way to get exposure through a mining company or the end user industry? I know you're talking about direct real ownership, which we'll get into, but are there other ways that people could potentially get exposure to this asset class? Yeah, just the one you mentioned, really. I mean, they're not at all correlated, you know, to the stock exchange. So no, in that regard, but people do, there's quite an interest in them in the US, I found. But up till this point in time in the mining side, because that's, you know, that's why we're chatting today is we want to sort of get the word out more in North America that there's another option. You know, you don't just to have, have to invest in a mining company. But yeah, at the moment, this moment, the denial of the only, it's either maybe invest in mining. And there are, you know, you will see, Brian, more production and more companies in the US. It's on the way, if you will. It'll take time and investment. And what the critical thing is the refining is to get the experience refining. So you will see with the demand in the world, you know, you know, sort of escalating on a massive scale, you know, the U.S. is going to sort of produce more. But for the moment, no, that's it. Just, you know, investing in, in a miner, physically purchasing them from us. 
So let's go through that. How does this work, right? I'm interested in owning, of having direct ownership in these strategic metals, these rare earths. I go through you as an intermediary and I buy $100,000 worth of a particular metal, or do you provide a basket for diversification purposes? Walk me through what that process looks like if I were to give you a call and say, hey, I'm interested in doing this. Okay, so you're buying them not from me. I mean, you're buying directly from Tradium, the industry supplier. Now, just to give you an idea of the volume they do, I mean, they've over 30 years uh, in the business. On a daily basis, 85% of their business activities are buying and selling metals, you know, mostly obviously from producers in China and then reselling them to industry buyers. So at this moment of time, to be exact, they've like more than 2,900 industry buyers in more than 70 different countries. So that's what they do 80, 85% of the time. And, you know, with that in mind, they've outsourced the investment side to, you know, sales partners like myself, mostly in Europe. We're now expanding more to the US. So, yeah, you know, we recommend, I mean, it's up to you. You can buy one metal if you just like gallium, for example, or indium, which, you know, allows you to swipe your phone. You can buy one metal or you can target an industry if you happen to like, you know, okay, anything that's connected with solar power. So that's up to you. But I would sort of guide people through that. I mean, we we tend to recommend have a, a stable base for portfolio, which is about 10 different metals that covers all industries. So you've got modern technology, solar power, wind power, electric mobility, all there together. And then it's just a question of deciding how much you want to invest. The minimum investment is only $10,000. And actually, for less than 13000 a client can get one kilo of every one we offer. So they'd have a nice, stable portfolio to begin. And most clients buy a second and third time. And, you know, you can even have your own little platform where you can sort of buy or sell as well, you know. The purchase process itself is very straightforward and can be completed in sort of three to four working days. But... Let's say you said to me today, I want to get, you know, $10,000 worth of gallium. Then all I'd need from you, Brian, is your name, address, contact information. And then I'll send you an offer from Tradium, an official offer, like a pro forma invoice, which will show you the, you know, the purity levels, the analysis reports, the chain of custody, the metals you're getting, the price you're paying, you know, and that's it. And so these, this group in Germany, they actually have physical possession of these metals in a facility somewhere? Yeah, as I said, they're in business 30 years. But in 2010, they, you know, being entrepreneurial, it's a family-owned business, they thought, well, why don't we offer rare earths just like gold and silver? Now, they actually also do offer precious metals, but their specialty is rare earths. So they bought what was a a bunker in World War II, two, two levels below the ground, converted it to a fully secure, bonded, tax-free zone, uh, and since 2010, they've been offering this opportunity to investors. Now, what I would say as well is the vault at this moment in time has more than 200 metric tons of rare earths in the inventory, which is over 200,000 kilos. Less than 20% of that inventory is investor-owned. So the ratio between what's investor-owned and what will be sold to industry is is very conservative because they also guarantee the liquidation, you know, and that way they can guarantee to liquidate them at any time. It's the largest inventory of rare earths anywhere in the world outside of China. And that was going to be my my next question. What does this look like 
compared to to gold, right? I mean, a lot of people buy gold as a hedge against inflation. It has no yield. It's often described as a negative yielding bond because it actually costs money on somewhere down the line if you want to actually hold and preserve your ownership of the gold itself. Are these producing a current yield or what is the return expectation or profile for these rare earths? Okay. So look, obviously it's a speculation. I mean, you're buying a, a commodity and it's purely driven by supply and demand. So it would be immoral or wrong for me to say, you'll make this money and that money. However, I can give you the historical pricing. As I mentioned, they've only been available to private investors since 2010, which we've been doing you know, very successfully here in Europe. But just to give you an example, like say in the last five years, on average, if you bought this 10 metals we offer, on average, they're up 30, to be uh, being exact, they're up 34.25% a year, every year for the last five years. So they have been outperforming, you know, precious metals, FTSE, S&P. But the real story here is, you know, the supply and demand. I mean, if, if, if somebody, for example, was to set up a Google alert and put rare alerts, within 10 days, you'd be sort of going, wow, this is our, you know, I, I can't believe I didn't notice, but what you'll find out is just everything we've been speaking about, Brian, which is China, you know, dominates this market. And, you know, you know, we know already, you know, modern technology, there's no, you know, there's not going to be a decrease in demand there. But what, what's very interesting just this year alone is, you know, with Russia invading Ukraine, Europe now wants to, you know, wean its dependence off Russia, you know, energy. So, you, you know, wind farms, solar energy. You know, the demand again, and if you couple that with, you know, the electric, just, you know, just electric mobility, the auto industry is going fully electric. So for the next, you know, five or 10 or, you know, years, we're going to see, you know, gallium again, I'll use gallium as an example. It's estimated that the demand for gallium is nine times higher than the supply. And that won't change until possibly 2035. So gallium's up 50% a year. Every year for the last five years, it's already up 40% this year. So that's why as well, Europe and the US are now sort of scrambling to, we need to wean this dependence off China. But, you know, there's a couple of things there as well. One, they can't do it quickly. Two, it'll be more expensive. And three, you know, they need to get, you know, uh, metallurgists, you know, geologists. It's complicated and expensive, this separation process. So All of that bodes well for investors who own the assets. And the liquidity component, if you say I've had a nice rip on my basket of of goods or maybe one particular metal, do you just put a sell order in and then it's a a mark-to-market type strike price and then you exit and get cash out of from your end? Yeah. So it's the sort of entry and exit are exactly the same. So just if you'd said to me, Louis, you know, I, I want to buy, you know, $100,000 worth of all 10 metals. You would receive an offer from us, you know, the next working day or that same day, if it's a working day at the current market prices. And if you accept that offer, then we send you an invoice and you send the funds and you actually, just so you know, the metals take about three to four weeks, uh, four to six weeks, let's say, to come in. So they're not there. They have to be ordered and then they come to the facility, but the price is locked in from the offer. Uh, the same in reverse, if you came back six months later or a year later or three years later um, and said, I want to exit, I want to sell all my gallium, we'll send you an offer that day at the current prices. If you accept that offer, 
you'll be, you know, you'll be paid up in three to four working days. So very quick and easy. And this market is liquid in your experience over the last 10 years that you've been doing this, that there is typically a pretty robust marketplace with arms length, third party buyers and sellers. Extremely liquid, Brian, extremely liquid. As I said, Tradium in Frankfurt are, have, are selling metals to clients in more than 70 different countries. And they're doing it 30 years, so they're close to 3,000 clients. And they're a, you know, they're a German commodity broker. They're very conservative, very transparent. You know, their main business is buying, selling metals. The investment side and the vault, you know, are two separate businesses, you know, two different revenues. But the main business is buying and selling metals. And if it wasn't, you know, you couldn't even contemplate to do this. But uh, yeah, they're, they're extremely liquid. Like one thing I always say is, you know, I mean, talking about modern portfolio theory is, you know, to have diversification. And, you know, a lot of talk obviously is passive income, let's say from real estate. Now, you know, that'll be my first choice, you know, and it is my first choice. I'm not saying, uh, you know, metals is maybe a bit further down, but for example, real estate will give you passive income. Metals won't. You only realize your profits when you liquidate. However, what they will give you that real estate doesn't is high liquidity. If you decide to sort of liquidate a, a property, I mean, you, you might take 90 days, but it could take six months or a year. But if you, it's, it's just like having cash in the bank with a very good interest rate. If you have metals, you can liquidate them, you know, you could, you know, in three to four working days, you'd be paid and finished, you know. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. But it seems like, given the dynamics we've covered already, and I'm not asking you for financial advice, but it would appear to be a buy and hold strategy here where you're betting this market will mature, that the supply demand dynamic that you discuss is going to go more on the demand side. And this is very much, if you're thinking about asset allocation or percentage of ownership, this is a long-term hold. And, and I suspect there is quite a bit of volatility within the pricing of these assets, correct? Correct. Yeah, we, we do suggest a medium to long-term play, meaning medium being three to five years, long-term being 10 years. Another thing to consider is the facility in Frankfurt is a zone larger, which is a free, tax-free zone. And if you hold the metals there for at least a year, then there's no taxes on, on buying or selling. But if you, if you keep them less than a year, there's some import duties and stuff. So if you want it to be tax-free completely, keep it a minimum of one year. But we recommend three to five years. We really do. As far you know, the prices, we get prices on a daily basis from, from the suppliers and producers in China. They've been sort of, it's a bit like crypto. If you got in early and just stay in, you've just steadily been increasing. But they can go up or down. I mean, let's talk, you know, we're talking about the pros. Here's are some of the cons. Like any, you know, material, it's purely supply and demand. So let's say Indium, for example. Indium, you can swipe your phone because of Indium. So let's say you bought some Indium. What could happen there in the future? Possibly somebody might find a better technology to swipe your phone, or they might use a different material. So the, you know, the demand for Indium could go down. You know, that's the things you've got to look at. Also, there could be 
for whatever reason, another, you know, an over, you know, oversupply of indium all of a sudden. And, and again, that would affect it. But the reason we recommend the three to five years is, is comfortably then you should be looking at, a, at, you know, if you look at the last five years, you'll be looking at, if it continues the same, you'll be looking at, you know, good returns as well. And would investors get access to some kind of portal or online where they can see real-time pricing and, and comparative to their entry point and, and what the, you know, theoretical market valuation is at any given time? Yeah, well, they can sort of independently. I mean, like I could list or email somebody five or six different sort of, you know, websites, you know, from, you know, North America, from Middle East, Europe, that show indicative pricing. But you can't buy metals there, but there are indicative pricing out there. But we, you know, we create a sort of a performance, as you said, a portal with a performance sheet for our own clients. Now, we're updated, you know, every day, but we update our clients' performance sheets once a week. So, you know, every Wednesday we do it. So at a glance, they can see how each metal is performing and how sort of the average of the portfolio is performing. So you outlined the risks, which I think is helpful. I want to go through an exercise where if people are listening to this and and seriously considering it or just want, to your point, set up a Google alert, which I think would be a fun exercise, what is a catalyst to the upside for these assets? Would it be China, to your point, limiting the quota or all of a sudden shutting off access to their domestic production of of these rare earths or or what else would, would be a catalyst to increase that pricing? I think you've pretty much, you've answered the question there for me, Brian. Look, nobody would argue, I mean, not even my mother-in-law would argue, right, that the demand for the, I think you're still allowed to crack mother-in-law jokes, are you? <laughs> we're, we're, I think we're still good there, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but nobody would argue that the demand for these the products where you find these raw materials is ever going to go down. I mean, you know, smartphones, computers, medical devices, aviation, you know, solar power, and particularly look at solar power, wind power, electric. So we know that demand is steadily increasing, no question about it. We also know that China has, as Jack Lifton says, has won the war, it's already over, and that where they crucially sort of dominate, you know, the production, the supply, the refining, and also the pricing. If they did what they did in 2010 with the Japanese um, situation, then we definitely see prices fight, you know, probably not a good thing to happen really, because they probably would come down again, you know, but generally as a rule, we'll see, as you mentioned as well, good example is last year, China doubled their production of electric cars last year alone. And then simultaneously, two of the raw materials needed for, for the permanent magnets, we saw the prices double as well, because they held on, they didn't, you know, export as much. I think even though we're going to see more production in the West, even though China, um, Australia, the US will produce maybe 20% more, they'll sort of start to train metallurgists. So there's going to be more in the, in the supply chain as well. But overall, because of this massive demand, I think we're going to you know, see continued growth for our investors. You know, I think to 2035 and beyond. Yeah, again, I think the parallels to energy are so interesting because this concept of peak oil, right, or, or peak rare earth, I think the market really underestimates the demand side of it. If you look at Africa or South America or some of these markets that 
don't have huge penetration with smartphones or technology or EVs. I think the demand side is just huge for these type of assets. And I, I don't think the general consumer, the general investor appreciates what the total addressable market is for the products that utilize these type of errors. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. I mean, if you look, I mean, look, even in, you know, say the, the modern world, the West, where we're doing well, you know, like Europe and the US, you know, my kids, everyone wants the, the, the newest, the biggest, the smallest, the fastest new device, you know, I mean, you know, every Christmas, every birthday. So there's already demand where these products are. And then if you look at the, you know, the BRICS, like Brazil, Russia, India, China, they're delivering hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. People have a bit more money. They want, you know, the best devices again and again. So just modern technology alone, you know, this huge. But again, the geopolitical events just this year alone, I think is going to create a massive, massive surge in demand because, you know, we're going through this monumental transformation in how we power our daily lives. There's no question over the next 15 to 20 to 25 years, you know, in cars, we're going all electric, solar power, wind power. And the raw materials needed for the for this transformation are, are rare earths. It's just a phenomenal time. That's why I got I got involved because I you know I love the idea of it, but just it's sort of it's almost getting better and better, you know. But as you said, the wider world isn't aware of it. Why not? Because it, it wasn't something that was available before, you know. And it might take another year or two or three or four, but it will become, I think, more in the mainstream. But one would have to be very, very, very careful buying rare earths, you know, I'd have to emphasize, you know, due diligence, of course, and you have to be, you know, like Tradium provides, they guarantee you the investor that you're buying industrial grade, high value assets that can be liquidated to an industry buyer. They also provide that liquidation. So, you know, I'm worried a little bit, we're going to see some sales and marketing companies pop up that can probably buy metals and maybe buy them from, you know, but there's different purity levels. You know, gallium has 10 different purity levels and only an industry will buyer will know, for example, you know, what purity level gallium is needed for, you know, a, a jet engine or whatever the case might be. So security, very, very important. But again, at the moment, at this moment in time, we're the only one that's doing this. And, you know, once people do their due diligence, you know, we have legal imprints and everything to provide. How do you gauge the actual resources or the the amount of quantity in the ground? And and what about the potential for some places, especially with spots like the Arctic and, and Greenland being more accessible now with global warming? Is there the possibility that there are huge stores and reserves for this that are just untapped? And it might not necessarily be a bad thing long-term, but do, do geologists have a sense of of where we are in terms of total availability of these rares? Yeah. yeah, it's a great point. I mean, only in the last six weeks, again, the Google and Earth, Turkey announced they had sort of trillions of dollars of rares. It's not true, you know, because they can be found, but not in abundance. They're everywhere. There's plenty of them in North America. You know, there's plenty of them in Africa. But it's that concentration, you know. And as well, going back to the, the point I made earlier, Brian, which is, they never occur naturally. So you won't find them. You know, gallium, again, is a byproduct of aluminum. And they're also mixed together. So first of all, they need to be extracted, and then they need to be separated. And that process is complicated and expensive. I'll give you a quick example. 
In the last 30 years, China has been graduating about 200 metallurgists a week, every week for 30 years. The U.S. is graduating about 200 a year. Europe, probably about the same. So it's not necessarily that, you know, where, you know, they, they are. I mean, they could sort of increase production in Mountain Pass, but do they have, you know, but at the moment in Mountain Pass in California, they're sending them to China because they don't have anybody in the U.S. that can do the, the separation. So it's in that process, you know, even if there is, you know, a lot, it's getting people properly trained and being able to do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds so similar to oil, right? You can have a huge reserve found in a country in East Africa or West Africa, but you need a multinational organization to come in to actually figure out how to extract it, how to refine it, how to get it on a ship and send it somewhere where the consumer is. That's wild, that metallurgist information. Yeah. It's crazy. And then, yeah, and those metallurgists as well, you know, they're, they're sort of... They reminded reminded me a bit of Walter White in Breaking Bad at the beginning, you know, making the good stuff, you know. I mean, again, if you want to sell gallium, you know, to the U.S. Department of Defense because they need three quarters of a ton in every F-35 fighter jet, you know, the purity levels, there's no room for error. And they'll only work with, you know, bona fide industry suppliers, you know, with proper, you know, people they've been working with before. So yeah, it's, it's not an industry that people can just come into overnight. And there's a long process from maybe having some in the ground to getting them out, to getting them separated, to getting the purity levels, to getting them the clients. It's just incredible. If people wanted to get smarter, you mentioned, and I wrote it down, I'm going to look this guy up, Jack Lifton. Yes. Um, yeah. are, there, are there other good resources or people or you know research shops that are putting out good information on this stuff? You know, it's funny, and, and, and Jack told me this as well, and it was such a, he said to me, you know something, Louis, he said, and he, Jack's sort of well into his 80s now. I mean, he's, he's, he's more of an academic. He's more of a guy that you know, the U.S. Department of Defense will call, you know, and ask about, you know, supply chains and stuff. But he said to me that um, he reckons there's no more than 200 people in all of North America that really know what's going on with rare earths. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, and Europe is not much different. I mean, how, you know, how we sort of got here, I think people are shaking their heads a bit, but it is going to, as I said, like I'm, I'm openly saying that the US and the Europe, they're going to increase production. They're going to start to educate these, you know, metallurgists and stuff that they need. But China didn't get here overnight. It took a generation for them to do this. It'll take close to a generation to get out of it, you know? So besides i think though investor intel itself um, is a good is a good resource i mean he writes for investor intel and, and they would be very good but and no this there's not i mean again it's hidden in plain sight i mean you read about this with that google and earth you'll see the japan times and you know new york times or different newspapers all over the world know about it and it's regularly commented on but it's it's just you know people have not not that people haven't woken up to it. I mean, literally, they don't know they can do it. And that's why, you know, I'm here today chatting with you. It can be done safely, securely for private investors. Yeah, no, that's incredible and, and very compelling and just super interesting. I was just doing my homework on this. Like I said, I'd, I I knew enough to be dangerous about what they were, but I had no appreciation for how much they underpin these advanced technologies that we use every day. As we finish up here, 
a question I like to ask folks, especially given your seat, you're dealing with some super interesting but niche alternative investments. They're very much tied to these geopolitical uncertainty and volatility that we're seeing play out across the newspaper. What's something that you do that brings you peace every day, considering what's going on in the headlines and the investments that you're making? Great question. Yeah. I suppose I focus, it might sound selfish, but in a, in a good sort of way, I mean, this is selfish for my own family is I keep my own, I just focus on what I can do and, and not what I can't do. You know, I sort of, to the best of my ability, keep my own side of, of the street clean, you know, and that keeps me from wandering into areas that are sort of none of my business. You know, I'm here in Tipperary in Ireland and there's no way, you know, I can, I, I, I actually don't watch much of the news anymore, Brian, because it takes my peace of mind. You know, it will. I mean, it's you're consuming, you know, what's being said. So just keep it simple and, and you know, and, and, and keep, you know, focus on my side of the street. And, you know, if I can, you know, look after myself and my family and I'm a part of the community here. And, and that's about it, you know. Well, Louis, I want to thank you so much for coming on. We'll be sure to share the link and tag you on LinkedIn. But if people are interested in learning more about the firm, the investments, you've got some really good resources on the website. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yes. Thank you, Brian. So my, the website, as you said, it should go to Strategic Metals Invest. You can sort of download a digital prospectus and uh, you know we'd automatically get your name, email, and I'll follow up usually. Or email me directly at louis, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com. Louis, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. It was very interesting. And for our listeners, please don't forget to leave us a review and let us know your favorite part of today's episode. Louis, thank you so much. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. 